Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Well, I think that uh, we're probably going to be looking at one of the most important messages that I have for you through this series. Luke is going through the area of what we now call the Middle East on behalf of Paul, and he's collecting stories to build a case. He's collecting stories not only from Paul, but in Ephesus from Mary and John and back in uh, the area of, of Israel for the towns that are left at the time. He's trying to seek out stories of the impact that this Jesus person made in the area to build up his case for the apostles later on. And this particular story that we're about ready to open up has to do with the transition of how disciples became apostles. Part of the job of a pastor is not to hold power, but it's to distribute it. To have the authority vested in them through ordination and through the recognized vote of the community that they serve, but to recognize in others their spirit-given abilities and to empower them to the work of the ministry. So as one community of faith, we can go together in prayer, in worship, in missions and in evangelism to work together in common cause. And that common cause is the realization of the kingdom of God here. So we're going to be studying about the empowering presence of Christ. What it means to be a disciple and what it means to mature, to grow from a spiritual apprentice to a master under the master teacher. In beginning that, I'd like to take a look and focus your attention on what it means to be a disciple in the first place, because we don't often think about this stuff. When we think about disciple, we think of it as being something that is synonymous with the word student. But what does a student do in this culture? A student is plopped down in front of a desk, they have a stack of books, the teacher blabs about something for about an hour, and hopefully if the student is still awake by that time, they've gotten something conceptually. Not necessarily so. Uh, if you would go back to the, the previous, please. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, but in the New Testament culture, this is significant. Methetes, which is the Greek word that we, tra we, we translate as disciple, has something significantly different. A, a disciple in this context is someone who studied at the feet of a master teacher, not just wanting to learn the scriptures from the rabbi, but to imitate the practical details of their life and perpetuate the master's legacy by discipling others. The goal of Christian discipleship is to become someone who disciples. The fruit of a Christian is more Christians, not just more converts, but more mature, developing, growing disciples who will become masters in this profession themselves. Jesus taught disciples with the goal of making them apostles, rabbis in their own right, but in this case of a different 
what was becoming a different religion out of the foundations laid by the old. An example of this can be seen in one of Jesus' students, who was also taught by Peter, the Apostle Paul, who writes, follow my example. He's talking to a church here that he himself helped to found. Follow my example. Don't just learn the books. Don't just learn the commentaries. Don't just learn Torah, but live together and live a life that reflects Christ. When the disciples, when the original 12 disciples came together, they lived in a close community together. They studied at the master's feet, literally plopped down on the ground while he was walking around talking to them, but they also observed him, saw the example of which he lived out his life. So he wasn't just teaching from, from a theoretical standpoint, he was also teaching by his lived example, which is why Jesus himself is so important. In the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus was the living word who lived a perfect and sinless life. And as their example, he becomes our example too. So what Paul is basically saying to the Corinthian church is just as I saw Jesus when he took me up into the third heaven and taught me personally, when I then studied at the feet of Peter, James, and John, and I saw the way that they lived their life, I now try to model that before you live after me too. So that as we go on generation after generation, year after year, century after century, that the life of Jesus is still lived out plainly before others. Are you with me, church? I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So a regular student, as we've talked about studies through instruction, memorization, research, the theoretical concepts. But it's a disciple goes a step further because they learn through a combination of, yes, there's the theoretical learning too. You have to memorize Torah before you can be considered a man in this culture or a woman later on as that developed. But they not only learned the theoretical, they learned how to live out through lived experience, and become a reflection of the Master. Does that sound familiar? Live in imitation of Christ. Therefore, the apostle continues, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love. Not literally his son, but his son in the faith. As the disciples were to Jesus, Timothy was to Paul. My son, the faith whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So again, we're not talking about just lectures and books. We're talking about a lived, close, and constant community. The, the disciples of other rabbis, and we're assuming Jesus here as well, lived in the same house with their teacher. They followed him constantly, if not close by, next door. So that everything they did, they saw they ate, was in plain view of their students. They lived in close community with each other. And this is the model of the church, that you not only be someone who comes together for a sake of spiritual entertainment, heaven forbid, but that you come here to learn, to grow, to develop, to work, to be the people of God. This type of discipleship required that they interact and imitate the master. 
to assist in his ministerial duties and to follow that master in hopes of eventually becoming what they were, to be Christ-like, which is what the word Christian means. So how's this modeled in the local church of today? Disciples are effectively pastoral apprentices. Now, for those of you that have ever been to a trade school, there are different levels of mastery. A disciple was effectively the, the beginning ground stage. It was the person who, uh, after completing synagogue school, went on to be under a master teacher, would live with them, and that would start out, as we do today, in something like Sunday school, where you learn the books, the black and white of Scripture, where you learn Genesis through Revelation. And in our context, the, the hope is, is that that's accomplished through a three-year rotation. So you learn the theoretical, that's first grade, basically. But then you become a ministerial assistant, which is what we're about to see in the Gospel according to Luke. This is background. I'll grant you, just hold on with me. They become a ministerial assistant. Now, this is more akin to what the deacons of a Baptist faith are supposed to do underneath the pastor, we are supposed to work together uh, them with their assigned. That's why we refer to the deacons assigned group of people as a parish. Those are the people that they serve in a servant leadership type of capacity. And that's what we're about to see in this particular context. But once they complete a round of, of course in that guise where they assist the master teacher in his ability to communicate, to minister, to meet the needs of the poor, to spread the word of God and so forth, and they become a master in their own right. This is Discipleship 101. In their case, apostles. Second Timothy, Paul writes, You, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to what? to teach others, to keep it moving. It's not good enough to just sit in the pew and observe a service or to treat it as some bizarre form of interactive concert. You have to be a disciple of Christ to be a disciple of Christ. You have to be the learner. You have to be the journeyman. You have to be the co-minister. As a member of a church, you cannot just be a pew warmer. You have to be in the game. You have to be a worker as part of the kingdom. This is what we're all called to do. You are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. There is nobody left out of that equation. So how is this modeled in the local church? Well, in our case, our discipleship pathway is this. We start out by loving God. That's ground one. That's what we do in this service as part of our worship. We demonstrate our love for God. We form the body of Christ as we come together. We lift His name in song. We have a moment where we can... In this example, where we break the bread of life together and we learn and we grow and we develop an active discipleship, but we also celebrate Him through the death, burial, and resurrection of the baptismal waters. We come before the, the, the communion table to experience a personal degree of fellowship with Him and with each other as the family of God as we break bread and we remember His sacrifice for us and the new covenant established and we rededicate ourselves every time we go before that table. And then finally, we are sent forth from here just as the apostles were. So every single Sunday morning here as we worship is a reflection of the life of Christ. That's how we begin by seeing that model lived out. 
The next step in the beginning stages is that we go to Sunday school, we go to Sunday night, we go to Wednesday night. We learn about the life of Christ, we learn about the Word of God, and we grow so that we're capable of sharing it together. Then the next step, loving others, is developing a testimony by being mission-minded by doing what Jesus did to demonstrate the kingdom of God and the difference that it makes, by feeding the hungry, by clothing the naked, by providing shelter for those who have not, and teaching them of the Christ who will save. And that's the next mastery level is that we share the gospel. Once you have a testimony, you share the testimony. We do not shirk away from saying that you have a God who loves you. Be always ready to give an account of the hope that is within you. Those are the orders of God. Not of just any one of you, especially the fat guy behind the pulpit, but all of us together in common cause. Then once we've gone through the effective essentials of disciples, of a discipleship, then we go into the mastery level. We become the pastors, the deacons, the missionaries, the teachers the chairs of our different levels of ministry, whose job it is to see others in the congregation, witness what gifts the Holy Spirit displays in their lives and put them in a place where they can make a difference. If you recognize this, say amen. So let's open up now where that's on display in the Word of God. Luke 9, starting with verse 1. Before we go any further, though, let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, as always, before we break the bread of life, we want to approach you with a season of prayer, and we ask that you would open our ears, our minds, and our hearts to your word, Lord, that the people before me would be blessed and encouraged, that they might receive the words necessary from your word as our master teacher to continue to proclaim your gospel before many, before others that as they leave this place, that they would be fully furnished or more completely furnished for whatever you have called them to do. So bless them now as we continue in your word together. And know that uh, as we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation, and again, it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Luke 9, starting with verse 1. When Jesus called the twelve together... He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So again, he doesn't hoard power and authority all to himself. He does not declare himself a pope, even though he has the right to be. He is Christ. He's the prince of the universe. And yet he doesn't hoard it to himself. He gives it away. He empowers those next to him to follow in his example. What is power anyway? Power in this case means strength, the capability to do work, the capability to make a change. In other words, it is your potential. And it's not your own. It is what God is feeding into you through the power of the Spirit. Reliant on Him to make the difference, but you as His obedient vessel need to be obedient in order for Christ's strength, for the power of the Holy Spirit to, made, to be made known you as his disciple first need to realize what your calling is and secondly be willing to put that calling into action. Then again we take a look at authority. What is authority? Authority is the ability 
to put that potential power into action. To direct that power. To give it a place to go. A purpose. To make vision a reality and to direct each other. In yourself or in others. So there's a degree of accountability built into this. We read in Matthew, right as he's about ready to head back to the Father, when Jesus himself does this a second time. We're seeing in, in Luke chapter 9, the apostles becoming a ministerial journeymen. Here we're seeing them going from being journeymen to being masters in their own right, to being apostles under Christ. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, these are your orders just as much as it was their orders then. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. For generations, this is part of the Great Commission. We left out. I hate to say it, but I was even part of a church who drove people to the altar, who, who shouted fire and brimstone. And the conclusion was a handshake, a slap on the, the shoulder, a, a pamphlet, and good luck. That's not good enough. Go make and teach. And not just anything. Teach them to obey all the things that I have commanded you, leaving nothing out. Proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Not just the good parts, but the challenging parts especially. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And lo, surely I am with you always. To the end of the church age. To the point where I call you up. I will be with you. Commandment with a promise. So what is the biblical model of discipleship? Simply put. Authority and power are not something that is hoarded away by the pastor, by the governing board, by the whatever you want to call it, depending on your church. Authority and power requires full participation. It requires distribution. In order to be a church, everybody has to be engaged. That means identifying the potential in everybody that's a part of your congregation, working together, just as the body has different types of cells, different tissues, different organs. The body of Christ requires specialization. And it's a specialization that doesn't have to be done because God has done it already. We are many people. There are many members but and many gifts to each of those members. That's another sermon, but bear that in mind that it's our responsibility to identify what we possess as gifts. That doesn't always mean what you want to do, incidentally. A lot of times your giftedness makes you go outside of your comfort level. I hate public speaking. I absolutely detest getting in front of a group of people, especially in a room this big, and putting myself on display. That's not who I think I'm supposed to be, but it's who God made me to be nevertheless. Part of what we have been gifted to do, designed to do, called out to do, is not necessarily what we want of ourselves to do. Also, I would never have thought of myself as a shouting Baptist. Never would have. As I was growing up, I was known as a timid little kid. I, I was the type of person who who uh, wanted to explain things in lecture format when I got into college, when I was a music major. 
So this is all new. But God designs us for things that often we cannot fathom in our own imaginations. And here's another thing I want you to take from all this. If God calls you into something, it is God that will get you through it. It is God who will strengthen you for the task, and it is God who will give you direction. If God calls you to it, then God takes responsibility of getting you through it. Amen? So, as we define, uh, as we've identified those, whatever they may be, and as uncomfortable as they may be in some cases, it's our responsibility to get our people into mentoring relationships so those gifts can be allowed to grow and put to use, harnessed, distributed. That's why we have ministry teams, so that those who have the gift of, of being merciful to others can be part of missions. Those who have the gift of gab and the gift of listening, too, just as important, need to be in, in evangelism, sharing the Word of God, making connections with our neighbors, fostering growth within the church and the community at large. Authority also has to be distributed, as we've already talked about, creativity encouraged. Because the times, they are a-changing. But our ability to minister, the new gifts that we've been given through technology, those have to be harnessed, those have to be identified, learned about, and put into practice so that we can reach an audience that we never could have beforehand. We actually have people listening to these sermons in Ukraine. Isn't that fascinating? People on our podcast ministry listening to us from around the world. Now, it's something that we're still growing and developing. But part of the wonderful thing that we have about ministering right now, there are people that woe is me with all that is going on in the world. Woe is me with all of the hopelessness. Woe is me with all the frustration. Woe is me with all the, the, the political uh, weirdness. Wars, rumors of wars, and so on. When in fact, as Christians, we need to be saying, what a beautiful opportunity to minister. Because God has set us up for just a time as this. While other churches build up walls to protect themselves, we need to be the offensive weapon. Not to hide behind a shield, but to go after the enemy with the sword. I'll tell you really briefly a story about a church in Louisville, Kentucky, St. Stephen's Baptist, part of the National Baptist Convention. Um, when Louisville went into hard times in the 80s and 90s, after LNN was absorbed by CSX Railroad, and Louisville and Nashville was a thing of the past, and a lot of those jobs got transferred all over the nation. A lot of things that, that had built that community, that giant city was now torn away in the, on its, uh, its west side. A lot of those churches developed a fortress mentality. When I say that, I meant that they stopped their outside ministry duties. They stopped working because they felt that, uh, oh, there's these crime is up. There's all this drugs that's going on. Everything is going on. I don't feel safe, so let's just hold on to what we have. Let's not minister anymore. Let's hire someone to do that for us. Or let's throw money at it. Guess what happened to those churches? They fell. They died. One church in that area of the Baptist faith decided to stand up and make a difference to give what they took into the poor. 
to do clothing drives, to do food drives, to grow to the point where they could purchase a hotel and turn it into a drug treatment facility. This is what happens when the people of God decide to continue in the mission of God. If you are obedient to God, God blesses that obedience. I had the opportunity to meet in this church once on a Wednesday night and the place was packed on a Wednesday. Deacons were coming before the church and giving a personal account of themselves because they recognized that that I have these problems in my life and I need you to pray over me for them. They gave testimonies of who they were and their own struggles. They weren't afraid to be part of the community of faith and say, I need your help. What a marvelous opportunity to know that you can be vulnerable before your family and your family will still treat you like a family. Not judging each other because therefore the grace of God go I for all of us. But instead of staring at the challenges of ministry, why don't we see them as opportunities? And again, being assured of the personal accountability to be able to say, this is who I am. These are my struggles. I need your help as my brother or sister in Christ. So what is the goal of any discipleship ministry? Disciples learn to become masters, that's your goal. You might not be called to a preaching ministry, but you may be called to be the best emblem of hospitality that this church has ever seen. You may not be called to be a global missionary, but you may be called to be a visitor that is capable of of sending an email, sending a letter, sending a card, approaching somebody at Kroger's and just saying, hi, how are you doing? Has God blessed you this week? If not, let me talk to you for a while. Disciples learn to become masters in their own right. The masters then mentor new disciples. Go. This is the word of Christ. These are his orders. Go. Find the place of God's calling in your life. Find the ministerial opportunity in this church or in this community and take advantage of it to fulfill that calling in your life. Make Attract others. Do not be afraid of that five-minute conversation because it is not you who takes responsibility for it. It is the Holy Spirit living within you who takes responsibility for putting you in a place where you can make a difference. Both by your words and your deeds, your conduct, your conversation, and your character. Baptize them. Commit them and yourself to Christ's example. Following Him in the death, burial, and resurrection, which is what baptism is, an emblem of both our past dying and our assurance of the hope we have coming. Teach them to obey. Teach them to obey. Do not let that which is outside of the church make its way into the church. Incidentally, we're going to learn this in a second. That's what the phrase, shake the dust off of your feet, actually means. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Empower each other to fulfill God's calling in your life. If that means education, we have opportunities for that. If that means building testimony, we have opportunities for that. Doing, growing, whatever it is, realize God's call in your life. Know that we can make that call into a reality. And in all of us, in whatever capacity that is, there is one goal in mind, that you are an ambassador in the name of Christ. 
as he's commissioning them and empowering them spiritually, he's also empowering them ministerially. And he's telling them to live by example. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. You need to be fully reliant on God for everything. This is not going to be a luxury trip. If you go on a mission trip, it's not about you. It's not an excuse for a vacation. It's an opportunity to make a difference in someone else's life by giving part of your own away, just as he did. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay here until you leave that town. Bless that house. Because that house is a blessing from God. Be fully reliant on Him for everything that comes to you through the work of your ministry. Here in the scriptural terms, what Jesus is telling them to do, He's commanding them basically to rely on the opportunities for hospitality that's built into the Torah. As a person living in this community, it was the community's job to provide for those who were travelers, especially provide for those who were the men of God. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is a very Jewish phrase that we often get wrong in our culture. Shake the dust off your feet meant that if you were traveling in a foreign land, if you were returning back to the kingdom of God, if you were coming back to Israel, in other words, you shook the dust, the literal pagan ground, off of yourself so that you wouldn't pollute the holy land. This is a physical representation of a spiritual reality, which is don't let the pagan influences outside the people of God make their way into the people of God. But hold sacred what God holds sacred because He commands us to be holy just as He is holy. Don't make vain the name of Christ. The second great commandment has nothing to do with your language. It has to do with your ambassadorship. To make vain literally means to render as useless or meaningless. Does God make a difference or not? Does God cause you to be different or not? Does the transforming power of Christ turn you into something new or do you just remain the old? When you, make, when you take the Lord's name in vain, it's all about your example before others, your conduct, your conversation, and your character. Disciples make vain the name of God by being useless, by avoiding a call of God in their lives, by being inactive, by benefiting, by being benefited, by being part of a church without investing themselves into the church, tithing their, their, uh, tithing their resources and their time and their skills. Worse, by bearing false witness. In other words, having an image with no substance. Uh, by living out a false testimony, which is living a life that claiming that you're a Christian, claiming you're a member of a church without giving any evidence of that church. Or living a life filled with doubt in front of others. A life, in other words, that says you're too scared to bear fruit. Christ wants you to bear fruit. Christ wants you as a Christian to be productive. That's, that's what the parable of the mustard seed is about. That's what the parable of, of, the, of the vine and the branches is all about. Without me, you can do nothing. 
So how do we then bless His name? Paul answers that question. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. No one is lesser than us. No one is worse off than we are because we all need His mercy. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The new has come and the old is gone. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ Jesus and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You have a purpose. God was reconciled to the world, to this world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you, therefore, excuse me, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How do we bless Christ's name? We learn Christ's commandments. We devote ourselves to Him through worship. We honor our call that God has given us. We invest ourselves fully into the work of the ministry. Remember, Christianity is not just that thing that you do every Sunday and Wednesday. Your profession is your spiritual condition. That's why we call it that. It's where that name originally comes from. What you do to earn money for your families is tent making. This is your profession. We live in imitation of Christ before others through our conduct, our conversation, and our character. We seek opportunities to be continually transformed. We call that um, sanctification. We have the courage given to us by God to pursue transformation in others. That's where the go and make comes in. I'll mention this really quickly. Because this is where that ambassadorial ministry comes in. A vertical, a cross-shaped, a crucified relationship. Cross-shaped, vertical and horizontal. They went out from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. They did what God had, what Christ had asked them to do. The horizontal relationship, that means between people. Incidentally, missions, one way that you can define that is the incarnate nature of ministry. It's being the body of Christ, being the hands and feet of Christ. Christ is where right now? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So who's here to do the work of Christ? We, who's the body of Christ? Who is the hands and feet of Christ? We are the church. So we introduce people to Christ the man, Christ the, the, the incarnate Son of God, through displaying His kindness, through displaying His compassion, through displaying His forgiveness in others, to displaying His willingness to reach out to people who are known sinners. Who did Christ eat with? Who did Christ go to? Who did Christ preach to? It's one of the things that I think a lot of churches get wrong when they try to make themselves attractional to others is they seek out people who are like Christians. 
They try to steal members from other churches, oftentimes actually slandering congregations in their own community to try to get people over to their side. It's a numbers racket instead of ministry. What we should be doing is trying to do exactly what Christ did, going to the unbelievers, going to those who are weak, hopeless, who need the love of Christ, going to those who are knee-deep in sin and about ready to end up in a devil's hell and to give them the, the message that they need the hope that they need, that there is a God willing to save them, to forgive them, to equip them, to give them meaning and hope in a world that they never knew existed. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from what? Sin in the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Display his forgiveness. Display his willingness to reach out to those that don't look like you, don't talk like you, don't act like you. Display his obedience. When you have lifted up, excuse me, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father taught me. Jesus is our example, perfectly obedient to his Father. Lastly, I'll talk a little bit about the vertical relationship. Obedience to God. Introducing them to God. Building a relationship with somebody else. And then introducing them as someone that now knows them to he who makes a difference in our lives. We offer our testimony. Who we were, who we are, and the hope that God has given us in a future in Christ. We offer them God's grace through reconciliation, the reconciliation that Christ provided for them on Calvary. We offer them fellowship as being part of the family of God. We offer them God's instruction through discipleship, learning the word of God, acting as his hands and feet. And we offer them God's support through the incarnate representation of his ministry, which is the local church. And now as we gather together, let's commit ourselves fully to that purpose. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.